0: And go to junior worship with the opportunity to hear God's Word communicated at a level that is readily under- understandable for them. I want us to turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John. As you know, we have been going through the Gospel of John. And we have finished John chapter 3. And we have bore down into John chapter 3 a great deal, as you know, several messages. And what I want to do this morning as we prepare not only to move to our new facility by next Lord's Day and begin a faithful verse-by-verse exposition of John chapter 4, I think it's good for us to do a little bit of review and then an overview. Now you know that I've told you before as we began the study of the Gospel of John, that if you were to divide up this Gospel in two easy ways, you would find that the first 11 chapters with a little bit of a summary section of chapter 12, those 12 chapters give us what we might call the book of signs, the book of glorious signs, the signs of of Jesus Christ our Savior and Lord. And then in chapter 13, running all the way through the end of John's Gospel, chapter 21, we could call it the glorious substitute, the glorious signs of Jesus Christ our Savior, and then it's the book of the glorious substitute, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. And those Two sections of John's Gospel make up what John wants to communicate about the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for sinners like us. And because we have spent a great deal of time in John chapter 3, I want to reacquaint us with this first portion of John's Gospel surveying just briefly, ever so briefly, in these 12 chapters of John that begins this Gospel, what John is doing as he writes. And remember, as we introduced so many months ago now, this Gospel, because we started on the very first Sunday, January 4th, I want to remind you, by way of a little bit of review in our introductory time together, what John is purposing to do in the first half of this Gospel. And I want to alert you, to the back end of the Gospel of John in chapter 20 because He gives you the very purpose of why He has written His Gospel. And He says in John chapter 20, in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these referring to the signs that John does allude to, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now it's interesting that when John says here, these signs are written down in this book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. What's interesting about that is is that John does not use any mention of the signs of Jesus from chapter 13 on until the end of his Gospel. That's why we can divide it the way I have chosen to divide it for us as we study it. In other words, the particular Greek word that John uses for the word sign, which is semion, he does not use in the latter half of his Gospel. And so it neatly divides up for us in this first section of chapters 1 through 12. And specifically, verse, uh, chapters 1 through 11 that give us seven representative signs that Jesus gave uh, to, or that John gave for us out of the ministry of Jesus. And I want us, just by way of quick review, to look at those signs from those first 11 chapters. Are you ready? All right, John chapter 2. Now, this is just a review. We've gone through, of course, John chapter 2, and we saw the first sign. It actually contains two signs for us. And in John chapter 2, we know the first sign is what? Turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And we know that John is outlining his book this way because in every section in which he mentions these seven signs, our key word, semion, the word for sign, is listed, and so we know what John's motive is in writing this first half of his gospel. It's to show these seven signs of Jesus, and he gives us the first one in John chapter two. He says, "Fill the water, fill the jars with water." John two seven, and he does that because he wants the Jews specifically the the family, the parentage, the heritage that he came from, to know that there is the new Messiah who's come into their midst. And we know that because chapter 2 verse 6 says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That was a ritual within Judaism. And Jesus, in turning this water into wine, wants to say, that ritual is now passe. It is gone. Because I, in turning water into wine, I am the new wine of the kingdom of God. This is an inauguration of Jesus' ministry and His first miracle, according to John, the one that He wants to set out for us in bold relief, is this turning miraculously of water into wine. And how does John... Give us this sense that this is indeed the first sign that He's chosen out of the many signs because He uses the word semion. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. This, the first of His signs, semion in the plural, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. So this sign of Jesus was to manifest the glory of Jesus. And that's why John places it here in this section of His Gospel. So that's the first sign. Sign number two. Immediately in chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, it says that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And of course, He came into the temple, and what did He find? He found a house not of worship, but a house of merchandise. You remember we studied that? And Jesus did a sign here. Not necessarily a miraculous sign, John uses on this word for sign, not simply as a miraculous occurrence of Jesus, but both in his teaching ministry and in what he was doing to present his message. And in this case, it was a message of judgment to those who were making his father's house instead of a house of prayer, a house of merchandise. And he made a whip of cords... According to verse 15, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And He told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make My Father's house a house of trade. And of course in verse 18, So the Jews said to Him, What sign, what semion do You show us for doing these things? And His retort Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they had no idea what he was referring to, and neither would we, frankly. It was what Jesus was predicting would occur as He hung on that cross, as He died and was placed into that tomb, and in three days He was raised up by the Father. This particular occurrence of the whip of cords and the cleansing of the temple and Jesus then looking at this temple and telling the Jews that He would raise the temple up. He's not only the new wine, but He's the new temple. And that's what He's doing in this section. And then of course in John chapter 3, it goes right into the dialogue with Nicodemus, which we saw very clearly in our exposition. And then we come to John chapter 4. The third sign. And we're going to do a little bit of overview this morning of John 4, so I'll skip over the vast majority of this chapter and go to verse 46. And So he came again in Cana, to Cana in Galilee where he would made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. We know that this is that third sign because, verse 48, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs, that's our key word, and wonders, you will not believe. And we'll get into the sense of what that particular passage and what Jesus is referring to a little bit in our overview and then in our exposition. But suffice it to say, this particular man... Even though he was in the position he was in, and even though Jesus said this by his compassion, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus very compassionately said to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering so He asked them the hour when He began to get better, and they said to Him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left Him. And the Father knew that was the hour when Jesus said, said to Him, Your Son will live. And He Himself believed and all His household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when He had come from Judea to Galilee. Two signs in Cana of Galilee One sign in Jerusalem at the temple, three signs. And John selects out of the many signs, those first three, to give us great evidence that He is, in fact, the new wine and the new temple and now the new healer. Fourth sign, chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for how long? Thirty-eight years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And as a summary of chapter 5, remember there were no chapter divisions in the Scripture as it was originally penned here by John. Look at chapter 7 for a moment. As a summary statement of this particular healing, notice what Jesus does in verse 20. The crowd answered, You have a demon, referring to Jesus. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one deed. What deed is that? The healing of that man at Bethesda. And you all marvel at it. He's referring to that particular miracle. Verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Referring, of course, to all the signs, and particularly this sign of the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. That's the fourth sign. And John gives that as the fourth opportunity for people to believe that no mere man is in their midst. This is a different man from any man who'd come into Galilee, who'd gone into Cana of Galilee, who'd gone into the temple area. This is no mere man. And it should be quite evident. And yet there is rejection, there is opposition, and there are those who simply will not believe. A few will, but most will not. The fifth sign, John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Verse 1, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. And what was the next sign? The miraculous turning of bread and fish into the opportunity for thousands to be fed. And what was the point? John the Apostle says in quoting Jesus, here's the point, Jesus is the bread come out of heaven. That's why He did it. That's why this particular sign is here. He says several times, I am the bread of life. I am the bread come out of heaven. I am He. This is the sign that God is bringing spiritual manna, and in this case, not the manna of Moses, but the man, Christ Jesus. That's a sign from God. And of course, chapter 7, and even on in chapter 8, John expands on these ideas and that's the fifth sign, sixth sign, the sixth sign, John chapter 9, Jesus heals the blind man. Of course, you know that story quite well. He heals this blind man and he does so in such a way that it is unmistakable who Jesus is. And in fact, in verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. You say, how can that be possible? These signs are irrefutable. In fact, this particular sign of giving sight to the blind, according to John chapter 9, has never before ever been done in the history of the world. Can you imagine if you were there and you saw someone giving sight to a blind man that was never before done in the history of the world, surely you and I would have said this man truly has come from God. Well, yes, you would say that if you had spiritual ears and spiritual eyes. If God had opened those things, as Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born from above, you must have spiritual sight from above, and if you don't have that, then you are one who rejects. And that's what they do in verse 16. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. They're hung up on when Jesus brought sight to the blind man. They're hung up on the day that He does it. Not the fact of His doing it. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Of course And then the seventh sign, John 11. The death and ultimately the resurrection or the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus, in doing this sign, clearly says about Himself to Martha, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is a clarion call for Martha and for everyone around the tomb on that day. Do you believe this? Jesus uttered a prayer, not for the sake of Himself, but for those who were around Him. He wanted to attribute the very miraculous deed that He was about to do with Lazarus to and for His heavenly Father. And He does so, and He says to Lazarus, Come forth! And He does. He was clearly dead. Jesus even delayed His coming to Lazarus to support the idea that He was truly dead. There were mourners there, and yet He raised Him from the dead. The ultimate type, as it were. The seventh and climactic sign. You see, if you run through John 1-11, through and you see these seven signs that John the Apostle has selected, it gives irrefutable proof that Jesus is the Messiah. There's no mistaking it. There's no getting around it. And you would think, again, that the Jews of Jesus' day, and even according to, to John chapter 1, He came to His own. That was his, his very mission. And of course, we know what John 1 goes on to say. He came to His own, and His own what? did not receive Him. Startling. Shocking. How could this be? I tell you how this could be. One word. Unbelief. Unbelief. The raw, sheer power of unbelief. This is what John 12 says in concluding John 7 signs. Verse 36, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Verse 37, maybe some of the saddest words in our entire Bible. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Their eyes were blind, their hearts were hardened as isaiah the prophet said and even john 12:41 isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him nevertheless many even of the authorities believed in him but it's a shallow belief it's a sham belief but for fear of the pharisees they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Twelve chapters giving irrefutable proof that the seven signs that John selects are ample enough proof that Jesus Christ is the Messiah sent from God. You ought to believe. You must believe. You can't do anything else but believe. Except, of course, for the power, the sheer power of the devastating nature of unbelief. And there might be, even in our midst today, in a congregation of this size, both those who believe and those who continue in stubborn unbelief. And these seven signs are here. You can read the Gospel of John yourself. You can come to the conclusion, I must make My choice, do I believe these seven signs? They're clear. They're powerful. They occurred. And because they occurred in the way they occurred, and because John selects these seven signs, and because this is the very purpose of his Gospel, these signs have been given, written down for you, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and having believed in that name, you may have life eternal. This is the very point. This is the very purpose of the book. And interweaved in and through this Gospel, through every chapter, is the revelation of those who did believe, and they number only a few. And what's interweaved in this book throughout its chapters is is an even greater number of those who, because of the sheer stubbornness of disbelief, said, no, I reject all seven signs, and if there were more, I would reject those two. And because of that, and because Jesus did, according to John 1, come to His own, and they didn't receive Him, that verse in John 1 goes on to say in verses 12 and 13, "...but as many as did receive Him, to them He gave the privilege, the honor, the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name." And do you you want to know one example of even though the Jews were rejecting their Messiah almost in toto, even though there's only a few, there were Gentiles who readily received. Do you want to know a major example of one of those? Turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. My introduction is over. And now the overview begins in John chapter 4. And I want to give you just a foretaste of what we're going to study here in John chapter 4 in the next several weeks together. This is an example. This is why John places this section here because he wants to prove what chapter 1 says, that he came to his own and his own didn't receive him, but there were those who did receive him and the Samaritans are a lovely example. John chapter 4, verse 1, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus Himself did not baptize, but only His disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And He had to pass through Samaria. That's John's way of giving the travel itinerary of the person of our Lord that takes him through Samaria. Why is that important? It's important because the Jews had nothing to do with the Samarians or the Samaritans. He had nothing to do with them. Why? Because they were considered half-breeds. They were half-Jewish and half-Gentile. And they were hated by the Jews. And the Samarians themselves had very little or nothing to do with the Jews. They were at war with one another. And so... John sets up the scenario. He wants to show those who receive Jesus even when the Jews reject Him. Verse 5, So He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as He was from His journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour or about noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And later in this section, the Jews are even asking the disciples of Jesus why he's even talking to a woman, not just a Samaritan woman, but a woman at all, because that wasn't kosher. That wasn't done. That wasn't acceptable socially. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Now, of course, what Jesus is doing, He's already the new wine, right? He's miraculously turned the water into wine. He's already cleansed the temple with that second sign. He's about to do this third sign at the end of John 4, And now, John wants us to know that He's the living water. The woman said to Him, verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? You see, they're half-Jews, so Jacob is their father too. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Referring to many, many years previous Jesus said to her, verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That is, that water from that well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. He's not talking about H2O. He's the living water. He's telling them, I have water that far transcends any man's physical thirst. For I have the living water that will quench the thirst of any person, spiritually speaking, and that water will well up within them to eternal life. And that's what he says. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And of course, Jesus, ever the one who probes, ever the one who evangelizes, Ever the one who knows in his omniscience, verse 16, He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And even though he was weary in his humanity and wanted a drink, he was also the God-man, and he had in his omniscient glory the knowledge of who this woman was, and in undoubtedly one of the greatest understatements in all the Scripture, verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You know everything about me. She said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, referring to the Jews, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. Don't miss that. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, Greek for Messiah, when He comes, He will tell us all things. And then this revelation. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. This is one of those Implied I Am statements. It's not explicit like the various I Am's later in the Gospel of John. This is one of those implicit I Am's. I am the One to whom I'm referring. The One who will give living water. The One whom the Father will destine for the role of bringing the Jews to understand the proper way to worship God. In fact, it is worshiping through me to the Father. Through the Spirit. Verse 27, just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman. Not just a Samaritan, but a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar. She was so impacted and went away into town and said to the people, come. Come. See a man who told me all that I ever did, which probably includes the idea that he told her so much more about himself, about herself than what's recorded here. He must have told her so much more. She knew that he knew her through and through. Can this be the Christ, she says? They went out of town and were coming to Him Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Him, saying, "'Rabbi, eat!' But He said to them, "'I have food to eat that you do not know about.'" And of course, they had no idea what that meant. What is He referring to? So the disciples said to one another, "'Has anyone brought Him something to eat?' I mean, we went into town to buy Him some food, to buy ourselves some food, and we came out here, and now He's saying He has food that we know not of. Did somebody else give Him something to eat? We're confused." And then, probably in the main section of this very chapter, verses 34 and following, Jesus said to them, My food, don't read there physical food, My mission is to do the will of Him who sent Me and to accomplish His work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Isn't that the regular season of life with regard to planting and then harvesting? Isn't this the way it goes? And then he says, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. What is he talking about? Who is he referring to? He's not talking about The idea of physical food and the consumption of that food and the process of planting seeds which will become produce, which then will become food and sustenance for your bodies. He's talking about these Samaritans. And he's talking about the idea that the Samaritans are ripe for harvest, including this woman. She's ready. She's ready to receive who I am. I'm communicating the good news that I'm the Messiah. I've been sent from the Father. And when the Jews reject me, these Samaritans, for this time and for this place and for this season of harvest, they'll receive me. The Jews have rejected me, so I'll go to the Samaritans. And they will receive my good news. He says in verse 36 already the one who reaps, Jesus, is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. This woman being an example. The fields are ripe for harvest, here she is, I spoke to her, even if the social convention of the day is not to speak to a woman at all, certainly not for a Jew to speak to a Samaritan, she's ripe unto harvest, and I will speak to her, and I will tell her about this living water, and she will respond, and she will be delivered from her sin. Can this be the Christ, she says, and the answer is yes. Yes. Yes, this is the Christ. And He wants His disciples to know that even though they are Jews and even though they are not supposed to be talking to these hated half-breeds, they are people too made in the image of God and who need the good news of Messiah come from God. They need to be delivered from their sin. And this is the point. If the Jews will reject, these will receive. And if they will receive then God gives them the right, the privilege, the honor to believe in the only name of the Son of God. What do you think is the response of the disciples? Oh yes, we get this, Lord. We totally understand this. All this is so crystal clear. No. No, they don't understand. And yet he says, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. I'm going to show you how the Samaritans will come to faith in me the Messiah and you did not reap those things or you did not sow those things but you will reap them. Others have labored and you who have entered into their labor. What is that? Jesus Himself. He's the one who sowed spiritual seed with this woman, and there will be others to come. I sowed the seed, and you're going to be involved in seeing the reaping of it. And we know that because verse 39 goes on to say, many Samaritans, don't miss that, many Samaritans, not a few, many Samaritans from that town believed in Him because of the woman's testimony. She went immediately as her own evangelist and began saying, this is the Messiah. This has to be the Christ. He told me everything I ever did. He told me about my former husbands. He told me about my unrighteous lifestyle. He told me about my sin. He's delivered me from it. She began to tell everybody about it. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Him, they asked Him to stay with them and He stayed there two days. No wonder He stayed there two days. Why? Because the harvest was plentiful. It was ripe. They were ready. They were receiving. They weren't rejecting like the Jews. In verse 41, so lovely. And many more believed because of His Word. The Word of His good news. The Word of His Messiahship. He must have explained the glories of who He was and what was His mission. And they received it all. They lapped it up. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They got it. They understood it. This is the message. This is the message that we preach to a watching world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And what's the response? Most of the people you and I talk to, eh, I'm not sure. I reject. I don't agree. I think it's something else. I think it's someone else. Not these Samaritans. They receive, they believe, they respond. And, after the two days, verse 43, He departed for Galilee. He goes, my friends, from ripe unto harvest to what? Dead unbelief. Stubborn unbelief. And He Himself says it, verse 44, For Jesus Himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. This is so sad. It's so remarkably sad. The Jews were to have the Lord Jesus be receptive in their midst. He's Messiah. He's done the seven signs. He's done already several here. Only three of them recorded for us. But several more signs have been done. The Jews are the ones who are receiving and seeing most of the signs. They should have responded. And so Jesus has to go out of country to the Samaritans in order for the ones who are truly the receivers to see and hear and believe. And as soon as He comes back in to Galilee, He says to Himself, Well, this prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And you're going to say, well, it says they received him. It says they welcomed him. They'd seen what he'd done in Jerusalem. They'd seen his cleansing of the temple. They'd seen other signs. They're just about to see the man who's 38 years in his paralysis be healed at the pool of Bethesda. Surely they're going to believe. Verse 46, So he came again uh, to Cana in Galilee, where he had made their water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now remember, this is a projection of a sign and the Jews almost roundly rejected even with the seeing of signs. You say, what's the point? Those who even see the signs are tantamount to reject. And there's maybe only a few, maybe a remnant. And if this man is Jewish... And there's some question as to whether or not he was. He cries out, and Jesus does heal the boy. And yet you continue on in John, in John 5, and John 6, and 7, and 8, and 9, and 10, and 11, and 12, and going forward even to the cross, and every single chapter gives ample evidence that the more Jesus does, including not only the signs, but His teaching, the more the vast majority of the Jews, especially the religious leaders, reject. And the Apostle says, I'm going to include John chapter 4 to tell you that the Samaritans, they're not rejecters, they're receivers. And maybe there's a small remnant, maybe a, an official's son, but by and large... Nobody receives unless they've been born from above. This is the overview of John 4. And we need to talk much about it in the coming weeks. But for now, for us, here is the concluding question. Do you believe? Do you respond to the person of Jesus Christ? You say yes. And if that's true and if that's your heart... It's because those signs of believing were in you being brought from above. God opened your eyes. He unstopped your ears to believe and receive. And when you did receive, He gave you the right to become a child of God. And you rejoice in it. You love God. You worship Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you want to. And you desire that. And it's because God has granted you the glorious opportunity to be a part of the kingdom of God. And as a citizen of the kingdom, you have your marching orders. You're you're being called to be sent out to a lost world. And you're not in charge of those who receive or reject. God is. And as a kingdom citizen, you preach, you teach, just like that woman in Samaria. And you go and tell everyone what He's done for you how He knows your heart, how He's opened your mind to understand the truth that Jesus is the Messiah and that He's forgiven your sin and that you believe in His death and burial and resurrection as an atonement for your sins and you see and believe because Jesus is the only Savior. Believe in Him today. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, as we conclude our time thank you for this very quick overview of John chapter 4 truly there is a sowing and a reaping there is a harvest to be gathered it is a harvest of souls and that harvesting may even include this very day Father, You know that I don't know the hearts of the men and women who are here, but I know that You do. And that You've, from eternity past, elected those to have eyes opened and ears unstopped, to see and to hear of the glorious triumph of Jesus who did inexorably go to that cross and who did die on that tree but who was raised from the dead and who for a period of 40 days taught and appeared to many giving ample witness that He was indeed the Son of God. Even the centurion there at the foot of the cross said surely this is the Son of God. There is so much ample evidence, Lord. You've provided it to us. You've given us John's Gospel. These signs are in abundance. And in these first 12 chapters, it is unmistakable as you read and as the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and opens the human heart to receive the glorious good news that Jesus is the Messiah and that He is the living water, that He is that bread come out of heaven that He is the new wine, that He heals the sick, and He raises the dead. And we believe, we receive. Thank You for giving us the privilege to be called the children of God. But if there are those who are here who have not yet received, they've rejected, they have steadfastly refused to respond to the ample evidence, may You at this time, Father, through the messenger, through John the Apostle, open the eyes of the blind and allow them to see the glorious truth that Jesus is alive and that He forgives sinners and that He loves us and that He came to die for us so that we might have the living water of eternal life may they receive today and may they come forth as new persons because they've been born from above Lord thank you for the glorious message of salvation in Christ whether it comes to half-breed Sumerians or religious Jews or any other category or ethnicity of a person. And may it be true of us that we have believed for the sake of eternal life and for the sake of spreading this good news, He's told us everything we ever did. He knows us. And yet He's willing to forgive us Lord, may it be true of us. And may we spread the good news of this gospel to a faraway land. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.